Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Uh, Andy, I, I moments before we started the live stream, I told you to shut up. I hope it didn't make it onto the actual live stream. <laughs> other than right here. Hopefully... It's deserved. It's, it's fine. Anyway, today on the show... It's not deserved. You're, you're fine. You're here, to, you're here to be a part of the show. Uh, today on the show, uh, we're taking a look at Edgar Wright's new feature, Last Night in Soho. It's his first entry into psychological horror. Very excited to talk about this uh, fever dream of a 1960s London nightclub scene. Very exciting. Uh, we're also going to take a look at... Wes Anderson's new film, The French Dispatch. Uh, Anderson has been away during the pandemic, toiling on this uh, unique uh, kind of anthology uh, feature of three short stories. We watched it. We're going to tell you whether or not it's worth your time. We're going to look at some new trailers, exciting things that are coming out in the near future that you're going to want to buy some tickets for. And before we get to all that, the news. And I'm disappointed to say it's a bit of a light news week this week because there's not, it's not a whole lot going on at the movies, I don't think, right? Well, it's Halloween weekend, so it that's sure uh, it's, it's usually just not a great weekend for movies because of park parties and trick-or-treating and other festivities. Yeah, so we got some small stories to tell you about, but the first thing's first. Uh, Dune is continuing to crush it at the box office, and Last Night in Soho, which is coming out this weekend, not doing maybe as well as people might have expected. Andy, what do you know about this? Uh, so as we, as you said, Dune is doing very well. It's dropped off about 60%, was won the weekend. No surprise there. Um, then it was followed up with uh, a lot of previous in- installments of, of films. So Halloween Kills did really well. James Bond did really well. Venom. Uh, all of those were in the top top five. And unfortunately, Last Night in Soho did not make the top five. It came in at number six. So it, it's struggling a little bit. Yeah, I mean, coming at number six does not look awesome. Wright, I mean, is is always been a bit of a niche director, right? You think of his filmography, it's going to be Shaun of the Dead, Hot Fuzz, The World's End, Scott Pilgrim vs. The World, and uh, Baby Driver. Uh, up until recently, Last Night in Soho is probably, I guess, one of his more mainstream features, but uh, it's also niche, and there's a lot of horror out there. I think it's easy to get pushed to the back, but even still, for an October release, I would hope it would be doing better. It's not a Bloomhouse horror. They don't have Bloomhouse marketing. I know it's working title and a couple other independent studios. And I don't think he did this one with Sony. So, uh, you know, I guess it makes sense. They don't have the marketing budget to keep up with the other big ones. But even still, premiering at sixth is 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 a bummer. It had and it had a lot of buzz. Like there there was a lot of buzz going into the weekend, and it just uh, it was weak. And I think that had more to do with Halloween and just a, a tough lineup to go up against. Yeah. Hi, Anna. Sorry, comment on Facebook. Uh, no, I, I agree. Like it's, it's a tough spot to be in and, and I really, you know, wanted more at the box office for my, my lovely director. I love Edgar Wright. Excited to talk about the feature in just a few minutes. Um, so we'll get to that shortly. Uh, next up, Chris Pratt springboarding off the success of his recently announced Mario voice casting, uh, is going to be playing Garfield in a new animated feature. Uh, Andy, this obviously has been met with some uh, trepidation, I think by fans uh previously who's voiced garfield bill murray and people who wanted to sound like bill murray right that was the angle right the lazy lasagna (laughs) loving house cat uh so now this is gonna be something a little different uh how's this work out how's chris pratt catch two huge voice roles back to back i mean he he has an, an impressive resume of voice acting most notably from the lego movie as wyatt i think is his character no, that's yeah. not right. Yeah, it? yeah, it's leading the Lego movie, right? Both yeah, so, so hugely successful. Exactly. So he he's got he's got good experience and good track record. So it's, it's not surprising that he got 
that he got Mario. And then, of course, you're probably going to get anything else if, if you get Mario. So it's a big property. And it surprisingly hasn't been testing in quite a while, maybe about 15 years. I didn't realize uh, the last movies were that long ago. Oh, gosh, they look terrible. Yeah, 2004 <laughs> and 2006 were the first two Garfield films. You're right. That's been a minute. Uh, this new one's going to be produced by a lot of Disney talent, which is really cool. It's going to be coming from Alcon Entertainment, but it's being written by the writer of... I just had this up. Denver's Finding new Nemo. Group. Uh, yeah, and 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 the two directors are formally directed <coughs> the Emperor's New Groove for Disney, which I remember was a bit of a production mess on the back end, but that's still cool. Like I'm I'm sure they'll turn out something fun, and then, you know you can see the new animated Garfield. He looks fluffy. He looks cute. Like sure, okay, yeah, I I I, I guess it'll work. Uh, any chance? I don't know. These movies are going to sound too similar. Are we all? What does this mean for Chris Pratt's on-screen presence? Is he washed up? Is he a voice actor now? What, what are you thinking? No, I mean, I, I think he's he's still a really in-demand actor for, for sure, um, despite some kind of extra cinematic uh, kind of hot political takes that, that um, he kind of has or that people have negative opinions of him. Uh, he's still getting, getting the work. And, it's true. Yeah, we'll, we'll, I'm sure he'll continue to get more. And and he was also in, you know, still doing action movies. He was in The Tomorrow War, which came out this summer. And From then Amazon, yeah, yeah. And then we'll be in Jurassic Park, Dominion, whatever, or Jurassic World, whatever the next oh, installment God, of that franchise is. They're making more of those movies. I forgot. <laughs> Those, those do well at the box office. Okay, that's right. Uh, yeah, you know, Chris Pratt doing voice work. Good for him. You know, I, I don't mind this too much. I'm not too bugged by the Mario thing either. Um, you know, he's not Italian, but like clearly it's going to be a different kind of approach and that's okay. There's nothing wrong with that. Kids love him. Why not? Chris Pratt, everybody. Our last story. Uh, and this one is not quite film, but it's in the realm of streaming. Like I said, a slow news week, so excuse us. Uh, Netflix is launching a video game thing kind of, within their app. Andy found this story right before we started the show. I, I just snuck it into the outline. Uh, poor man didn't even have time to read the whole thing. Um, but <laughs> from what it, from what we can tell, uh, Stranger Things is kicking off a mobile gaming uh, kind of angle on its Android app only. I, I, I Apple iTunes not currently announced, um, for those of you on iPhones, uh, that'll have two Stranger Things games and a couple other small games that you can access from, from inside the Netflix app on Android. So you can open up, open up Netflix and start playing mobile games. Andy, why are they doing this? Uh, well, it's been announced that they're, they've been trying to get into the uh, gaming area uh, for a while now. Uh, maybe about a year ago it was announced that Netflix was going to be getting into games. So this is their their first step. You know, They do have some good properties. They've licensed out Stranger Things content uh, to, uh, to other games, uh, most notably Dead by Daylight, which we enjoy. Um, so this is their their first step, and it's mobile gaming. It's, it's probably one of the easiest platforms to start on. They have some well-known properties, so it's it's the first step. Yeah, uh, these Stranger Things games uh, weren't produced exclusively for Netflix. These were actually available in uh, mobile application stores and on some consoles. And I remember, for what it's worth, I heard those Stranger Things games are halfway decent. Like, they actually put on, like, a dedicated team and a budget to making something that was, like, actually captivating for five to ten hours, I think. Um, so those aren't like those aren't slouches. Those those have like sold and done well in in marketplaces. So like those aren't those aren't nothing titles. I, I think people on Netflix may just think, oh, these are like totally something to brush off. But like, no, those are legit. The other three, like Card Blast or something else, those look like gen shooting hoops. Those look like generic whatever you know kid games. But like the Stranger Things games are supposed to be legit. Um, you know, Netflix jumping into games. 
it's not that crazy. I mean, just a couple years ago, they did that uh, um, that Black Mirror episode, right? Bandersnatch, where it was like, choose your own adventure. They also did that with Minecraft, like uh, something you would watch and kind of pick your way through. I think it's supposed to drive engagement for kids and stuff. So having mobile games available seems pretty neat. I also like the idea of them doing it in the app because that will just keep users there, right? Like you're not going to go wander out to the app store or anything. Like, no, no, you open up Netflix and that will be your entertainment portal uh, on your tablet. An interesting angle, I think. Hulu's not doing it. I guess Amazon already kind of does it. I don't know. What, what do you think? I mean... Uh... It, it'll be interesting to see how it goes, but I mean, they have a massive user base and it's, it's a little bit like Amazon. Like once you have, uh, um, you know, a billion or however many subscribers, like you can go into almost anything and I'm sure you'll, you'll find a segment of the population that, that'll do it. That'll yeah. be on board with it. <laughs> I think, well, it'll probably work for them. We'll see. I don't know if there's any big announcements or if they like drop anything cool on there, we'll let you know. Otherwise we probably won't revisit this story. We're mostly movie news, but, uh, you know, you can't have news every single week. And with that, we should move into our first feature. Uh, I'm going to be taking the summary on this one, so please excuse my clumsy delivery. The movie is Edgar Wright's Last Night in Soho. Baby, you don't know what you say. So what brings you down, then? I'm studying London College of Fashion. So Last Night in Soho is the story of... Oh, just already a clumsy start. I don't remember her name. <laughs> Eloise. <laughs> Eloise, played by Thomas and Mackenzie, who's great in the movie. Uh, Eloise is a young up-and-coming fashion designer living on the outskirts of London who's uh, just got accepted to her college of choice to go become a big fashion designer in the big city. She moves to London all on her own, finds her own place, and, uh, you know, starts trying to go to class and do her thing. She has some trouble meeting her classmates, but what's most interesting is when she sleeps, she finds she has these crazy, like, fever dream vision of, of, of a... Uh, a colorful, light-soaked 1960s London nightclub scene where she is a totally different person, a young girl named Sandy, played by Anya Taylor-Joy, has a whole different life, right? Wants to be a dancer and a singer, and she starts having these dreams, and and slowly over time, the dreams start to become more tangible, and she can't escape them, and they feel really real. And Before she knows it, she's wrapped up in this entire, like, psychological horror nightmare uh, that she has to find her way out of. Uh, the movie uh, just came out this last Thursday. They've been working on it for a couple years through uh, the pandemic. I'm very excited to talk about Wright. He's one of my favorite directors. Andy, what did you think of Last Night in Soho? So there's a lot of things that work in this movie, and I think that there's some things that don't. I think overall the good the performances are really strong. Uh, actually, Thomas and Mackenzie really carries the movie. You would think that Anya Taylor-Joy, as big a star as she is, is like the focus, and she's, she's really kind of playing second fiddle. Uh, not in a bad way. She's just not the main focus. Um, so really strong performances. And the other thing is just a lot of style. Like Edgar Wright is really known for his visual kind of flair that he brings to all his film. And we get a lot of that in these kind of scenes that are transported back to the 60s. Uh, so that kind of stuff works really well. The style, the music, all, all of that. The thing that doesn't work for me as well was just kind of the narrative overall. We, we kind of get this this story between... Um, Eloise in the in the present and Sandy in the past and Eloise is a struggling uh, kind of fashion student she she's timid she's introverted she kind of feels out of place but she's been wanting to you know go to go to London and go to uh, fashion college uh, all her life and then that's juxtaposed with Cindy Cindy Sandy in the past wanting to who's trying to be uh, a singing star singing sensation performer um 
and it's we kind of have a little bit too much going on. There's a lot going on in the past, a lot going on in the future. We can kind of get into that a little bit more, but it's it's kind of a, a mixed bag. But I think narratively, it's a little weak, but like visually, it's very very strong stylistically. Yeah, I, I'd love to come out swinging in in Wright's defense here and say no, Andy, you just didn't understand it. Um, but I'm kind of in the same boat. Uh, I think Edgar Wright makes really tight features. Uh, I think I think his work is, is speaks for itself. Like it, watching an Edgar Wright film is like watching a series of of well orchestrated card tricks, right? Like you, you get to see all these great transitions and exciting crash zooms and wonderful use of color and sound and needle drops and pop music to really create something special in the cinema. The problem with Last Night in Soho, I think, is it's too busy trying to juggle two completely different films. And it does a decent job of linking them together, but ultimately I think Wright's best work is in this 1960s Soho and not in the modern one where most of the film is supposed to be set. Uh, But that's a, a small thing, and I think easily overlooked by most people that have reviewed this film. Andy, I don't know if you've looked at any other reviews, but like most seem to agree this is this is a hit. Not a hit, but a very good entry yes. uh, into the psychological horror genre. I'm not so kind, and maybe it's because I was overhyped going into it, but I think it's good. I don't think it's Wright's best. I, I, I wouldn't recommend it from him for the first time. Sorry, hit my pop. Yeah, I've, and, I've uh, seen yeah. some, uh, yeah, I've, I read a couple of reviews of glowing, very, very positive things, um, and I, I was kind of in, in disagreement with uh, with a lot of it personally. Yeah, I've been surprised. So let's dig into it. Um, is this an objectively bad film? We'll talk about that at the end. For now, let's talk about the things that work. Uh, number one, I love the presentation in this film. Uh, the setting of Soho is as much a character in this film as anybody else. Uh, Wright is a huge fan of these older bodies of work uh, that had kind of this nightclub inspiration, and that all comes into the look and the feeling of this. Uh, Wright said in behind-the-scenes interviews that he wants to credit his location scouts and his uh, production designers and set designers for a lot of this work, and and I agree um, that stuff is super important, but uh, Wright managed to capture uh, most of the 1960s Soho with a ton of color and sound and... Hold on, Christine's grabbing something. You're good. You don't have to... She's too sweet. Okay. Anyway, Wright manages to call, capture like 1960s Soho with like these beautiful, beautiful displays of color and light and movement and music. Like the, we get this wonderful nightclub kind of setting, great tone, great tunes, um, tons of reds and blues and purples, almost like Italian horror inspired stuff. Something straight out of a, out of a Giallo film. Uh, but alternatively, modern day Soho has to be inverse from that, right? It has to has to stand out visually. Uh, so it's a little drier, it's a little bit more bleak, it's muted tones, <laughs> the camera's a bit more rigid, and that's cool. Like that that creates good visual distinctions between the two, but it makes the modern stuff just feel kind of dry, and and that's. That kind of hurts it, especially because we don't get to the 1960s until probably 30 minutes into the film, maybe more. And it's a two-hour feature. So that's that's a lot of time and a long intro that's ultimately like a little a little bland to start. Yeah. Um, yeah, in, in agreement with you, the, the style of the 60s is so good. And there's a lot of dance numbers, actually, that, that happen uh, both like kind of in the nightclub setting and also just kind of these... Uh, as part of the dreams that uh, Eloise Thomas and McKenzie's character is having, and you get this whole there, there's like this mirror theme of this duality uh, where because Sandy is kind of everything that Eloise is not. Sandy is very confident, very outgoing, very outspoken. Uh, right, knows what she wants. Conf- Go get her. Yeah, yeah. 
very confident young woman and Eloise is not she's she's from the she's like it's like the country mouse uh situation she's very timid she's very shy she's uncomfortable uh you know she doesn't really know anyone she doesn't really have have any friends and so there's this duality between not only the two time years but the two characters and you and that's actually seen visually in with the use of mirrors there's lots of mirrors uh throughout the film Yes, uh, and tons of practical effects, I think, uh, for how these mirrors are shot. You may see in the trailer a couple instances of this. Uh, Thomas and Mackenzie's character will look at a mirror, and on the opposite side, she'll see Anya Taylor-Joy. Sometimes that's green screen, but for the most part, I think it's it's genuine, like, practical effects. They had a room built with, like, a double on the back end, and then they had her stand there, or they had a green screen backdrop and had her go stand on the other side of clear glass to make it look like a mirror. They used twins at one point uh, uh, as, as butlers. Um I, I think the kind of dualistic nature of, of the presentation is good. I, I, I don't mind that stuff. And that's where a lot of like the fun visual stuff comes through. Um, where it hurts is when the characters have to stand on their own. <laughs> and that's, that's a weird problem in presentation. Um, you know, right films, like I said at the top, are traditionally very tight features. Um, he yeah. usually doesn't put in... Uh, a punchline unless there's a joke in front of it somewhere in the film, right? Everything is set up and then payoff. Everything is cause and then effect. Um, if then because statements are all over his movies. Uh, but this one doesn't have as many. It has some misleading points. It has some 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 angles where something will kind of be set up and I'll think, oh, that's a bit of a Chekhov's gun. That'll come back in later. And then it just doesn't. Uh, you know, you, you'll have kind of potential leads that don't really go anywhere. And I think Wright tries to use this to his advantage later in the film to mislead the audience into like intended conclusions um, to, to make you think that somebody may be uh, nefarious or maybe a killer when in reality it's been this person all along. Right. That's, that's classic cinema stuff. Um, but it doesn't quite work. Like it, it, it just, it just starts to fall out of the realm of believability. And by the time our characters are running around in the third act, um, you know, with in traditional psychological horror, fa- horror fashion with a series of problems and multiple situations that are on fire or currently about to be on fire. Um, it doesn't seem like there's any like real rules to the universe anymore, right? Like you, can, you can't have characters running around uh, be, being being a part of or or at least aware of uh, horror, horrifying acts of, of murder and debauchery and nothing happen, right? Consequences have to follow. Like there, there has to kind of be... Uh, a, things have to come from, from our characters' actions. And sometimes it doesn't happen in this movie. And it just feels weird. It feels out of place for an Edgar Wright film. And I, I'm not sure if that comes from his inspiration in older horror or that's just him trying to do something different. It's different for sure. Um, but it feels like a bit of a misstep to me. Yeah, it, it's almost like there's just too much going on there because you have Eloise in the present who is, again, struggling with, with college and, and also maybe some mental health issues um, and being in a new place, new city. And there's a number of pretty interesting threads or, or narrative setups that are never really developed or resolved. And like, likewise in the past that there are some setups that don't really go anywhere or kind of go in ways that, that don't make a lot of sense. Cause, because we eventually learn that uh, maybe something bad happened to Sandy and Eloise is trying to figure out, kind of solve this mystery in, in the present, but it's almost like he needed another, I don't know, like another hour to to um, really tie up all, all these loose ends. And, it, and it's almost like you needed to either cut more of the story from both sides, the past and the present, or do more of one or the other. Yeah, like it, it, he's 
really trying to make two kind of different settings and different worlds with characters who are similar and have kind of that, you know, long red thread tying the two of them together. Um, and it just feels like he made two halves of two different films instead of like one whole. And, and it doesn't always feel that way. And that, that I think that seems going to seem harsher than maybe uh, it should be, especially if you've seen the film, you might, you might be thinking Andy and Zach are crazy, but hear me out. Like, I think it works and it's exciting, but like it ultimately doesn't come off feeling like an Edgar Wright film. It feels more just kind of a, like a blase horror feature. And, and that's, that's a bummer to me. Cause I think where Wright stands his strongest is, is in his, is, is auteur moments, right? The, the things you see in an Edgar Wright movie that feel like you could only catch it in an Edgar Wright film. Yeah. You know, the, the crash zooms from hot fuzz or like the hopping over the walls in the Cornado trilogy or, or even something like baby driver, like the perfect needle drops. A lot of those features are here, but like, it just, I don't know. It, 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 it feels like it's lost. It's, it, it's missing a, a lot of the somehow it's missing a lot of the Edgar Wright touch. You're exactly right. right. Like uh, Hot Fuzz is one of my favorite films of of all times. It's so funny. It's so cleverly written, and we, and we don't really have we don't really have a whole lot of humor in this movie that that we're used to kind of in in everything he does. And again, Baby Driver. It's almost like an action musical. Uh, like the way the ac- the action and music is so synced up in that, and we don't really get that either. So we do get a lot of his. Vi- not even his, but we get a lot of visual style, but we're, I feel like we're missing a lot of the things that make Edgar Wright, Edgar Wright. Right. And I, and I think that's okay. Like, I, I think it's all right for, for, for directors to step in different directions and try new things. And here he, like he's stepping boldly into a different genre, right? Shaun of the Dead had moments that were frightening in it, but ultimately like we're in service of comedy. Uh, Hot Fuzz has the same thing. There are moments of, of, of abject terror in that film, um, but it still works. Um, Baby Driver has some stuff that's even a little, supposed to be a little eerie or spooky uh, towards its climax. Um, but this movie, it's definitely got things that are spooky, but it's never actually particularly scary. Um, you know, it's, it's, it, I didn't, I didn't feel particularly yeah. frightened sitting in my seat. I didn't feel any <laughs> real sense of tension. And I, I don't know if it's just cause maybe I was overhyped, but I don't think so. Like, I, I think this movie is trying to, to, to pen a, a love letter to kind of the horror films of old and Soho as a place and it, it, it does step away from any outright like jump scares or like intentional, you know, real scary keep you up at night stuff. That's that's not really going to be in here. Yeah, it, it's really uh, about the horror. It, it, it's like really like PG, PG-13. It reminds me of like Goosebumps, like that level of, of horror. It's like scary for an eight-year-old, not, not for, for an adult. And it's just... It's a little cheesy, and it, again, it, there's not a lot of tension. There, there aren't jump scares. There aren't any. You don't have like a creepy mood, like something like in in The Shining. Uh, yeah, it it kind of fails as a, as a horror movie. A little bit. It, you do you do get drawn in 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 I think the second act, like as she starts to kind of experience more of these visions and dreams, and they start to become more tangible and more linked to reality. Like I think that that stuff's interesting. That's a bit of a you know. But a bit of a, a maze to kind of pull the audience through. But once you kind of figure out where it's headed, it, it just feels like it gets a little messy. And, and I, I don't think it needed to. And I, it's hard for me to identify why that is. But I, I want to talk about performances. Uh, uh, Thomas and McKenzie and Anya Taylor-Joy are both tremendous. Uh, personally, I preferred Anya Taylor-Joy. Uh, <laughs> I definitely remembered her character's name. Uh, or as Eloise is kind of this, you know, mousy, quiet, you know, uh, meek girl. <laughs> Anya Taylor-Joy is much she, more exciting, much more vibrant. Dude, um, sorry to quote uh, Stanley Kubrick. Yeah, she, yeah. she does kind of get into, uh, or sorry, Roger Ebert. She 
Thomas McKenzie does get a little bit into the screaming dish rag, uh, <laughs> right? Yes. territory. Yes, the uh, uh, Wendy. Right, from you're, the you're referring to Roger Ebert's review of The Shining when he said Shelley Duvall's Wendy in Stanley Kubrick's film is like it's like a like, what crying dish rag, shrieking dish rag, shrieking, shrieking, yeah, dish rag. Right, a hor- a horrible thing to say about a performance, but as far as characters go, sometimes it can be true, and, and it's kind of true a little bit. Like, try, it, it, we get a little there's bit some of times that. this feature, yeah, like she's just wailing, and like we don't really have direction. Matt Smith's a lot of fun, but ultimately is a little underused. Uh, Terrence Stamp is in this feature, who I didn't know about. Uh, I thought he was. was he, I, I honestly didn't think he was still alive. Uh, you, yeah, that, that's. And for those of you who don't know, he he played Zod in Superman two. Yes, Terrence Stamp has a long and storied career. And also, uh, an honorable mention for Diana Rigg, who also, I I found out after the feature, is not alive anymore. This was her final film appearance. Uh, She was one of the original Bond girls uh, in On Her Majesty's Secret Service. She also was featured in Game of Thrones. It would be a more recent thing. What was her character's name? Lady Olena, I think. uh, I think it's Lady Olena. Yeah, I think that's correct. Anyway, um, she is tremendous in this feature. Uh, I actually really liked her a lot. I did not know this was her final feature, so um, a really great one to go out on. She's 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 a lot of fun. Overall, I, I like the cast. I like the visuals. Also, like the needle drops. That's an important part of an Edgar Wright feature. Tons of good music in here. Lots of really good retro stuff. I've been listening to the soundtrack on Spotify since. Uh, would recommend. So, Andy, <laughs> the cast is good. The music's good. The visuals are great. What? <laughs> It falls. It, it falls <laughs> apart. Thoughts it, or it, it really just to me. For me, it falls apart. It with the the plot. There's yes. both too much going on and then not enough kind of cohesion between past and present. Uh, there's a few misdirections that don't really make a lot of sense. Um, and I, I, okay, this is gonna be a little bit sensitive, but I really want to get a, a woman's opinion about this film because it becomes a little bit exploitative and. I, I kind of feel it's a little bit like it gets that that Kill Bill thing where it's like a man writing about a woman, wo- a wi- women's issues. And like, I don't know that that's a great thing or that that's really done. And like I said, I, I would really like a, a woman's input on on that. Yeah, there's definitely some like some some student film essay material here on the content. Um, that's something we haven't really talked about is definitely worth mentioning. Thank you, Andy. Um, yeah, the, the story of how these girls are treated is a little relevant and, uh, I think that's important and I'm not sure where I land on it, right? We've got Thomas and McKenzie in modern London and she's a student and she's up and coming, but for the most part, things are all right. And then you wind it back to the sixties to like a young, attractive woman at a nightclub alone. And like, you might be surprised at how people treat her or what, uh, what, uh, you know, a, a drunk man might say that stuff is explored a bit in this movie and I don't know enough about it to weigh in. <laughs> well, it, it starts, it starts. I don't, don't want to lean in and talk about it, but uh, go ahead. It, well, I was going to say, because, because it does start very promising where Edgar Wright is definitely addressing like the, this, this idea of just sexual harassment. Like, uh, Eloise is kind of leered at by her. She gets an Uber and her driver immediately kind of starts hitting on her when she first gets to London. And she like frantically gets, gets out and he like waits for her outside of this shop that she's at, you know? Um, so there's all these kind of leering gross old men and that happens both in the present and the past. And so like, I, I feel like Edward Edgar Wright is trying to say something about this and he's bringing up a very kind of important, difficult subject, but then it kind of loses its effectiveness or way about halfway through. Mm hmm. Yeah, it's um, 
I know it's curious, and like, and like I said, I feel like there's there's a handful of of kind of important points in this film that, that don't really go anywhere, and I don't know why that is. I, I don't know if it's because it was supposed to be something larger and it's left over from things that were cut from the script, or if it is actually important. I, I'd like to go see it again, and until then, I guess Andy, we need to decide whether or not this is worth recommending. Uh, any other thoughts or recommendations? I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend Last Night in Soho? I would say save this uh, for streaming. Uh, nor- normally, I would say for any Edgar Wright film, I would usually say run out and see it now. But uh, I-, I was a re- really a little underwhelmed, and I think it has a lot of big narrative problems. Uh, but if you're a big Edgar Wright fan or if you're a fan of Soho or the 60s, I think there are a lot of good things worth seeing in it, but uh, it can wait till it's on a streaming service. Yeah, I, I'm kind of in the same boat as well. Uh, I, I like Edgar Wright a lot. <laughs> I went and saw Baby Driver twice at the poster uh, up in my office for a really long time. And I, I, I adore the Cornetto trilogy and Scott Pilgrim. So I was really looking forward to this. And maybe I was overexcited, right? Maybe I went in with expectations too high. But I'd say if you're a fan of his work, if you know what you're getting into, or you really like, uh, you know, psychological horror and want to see something a bit different than a Bloomhouse feature, go see it in the theater. Otherwise... You could probably stand to wait, and I feel weird saying that, but it's a bit more intimate. I don't think it's quite as flashy as some of his previous work, at least not all of it. Um, you know, Last Night in Soho, like, it's it's different. It's not bad. Um, a lot of people will end up saying, I think it's good. Um, you know, go, go see for yourself, I guess. Head, head to the movies and find out what you think. Also, one more thing I wanted to mention before we move off this off this film, because I read this in trivia the other night, and, and I, I got to drop it on the show before I before I forget, and it's lost forever. Uh, Andy, I didn't know this. In Last Night in Soho, if you're sitting in a theater watching it, I don't think it's limited to Dolby theaters. I think this is all of them. For the first half hour of the film, uh, you're only getting sound from like the front row of speakers. None of the surround sound in the film works. The surround sound doesn't turn on until Thomas and McKenzie's character goes to sleep for the first time and goes to the 60s. Oh. And then it all comes in and like the cars start to come in behind you in the theater and like the music starts to swell in from the sides and you get surrounded by sound and for the rest of the film surround sounds on. Which is sounds super rad. <laughs> I think I think saying that after saying wait to watch this on streaming. It sounds super rad, but also worth mentioning the first half hour of this film is simply front row speakers only. That's not for everybody. Like that's that that can be a noticeable dip in quality, and that's the kind of thing that I think leaves the modern half of this film lacking. Like that's that's a that's a that's a harsh start for a film. Um, you know, for a quarter of the runtime, you're not getting surround sound at all, and that's intentional. But like, just keep in mind that there are some direct some directional choices here towards presentation um, that I don't think are always a hit, and something like that might be one of. Them. Yeah. So that reminds that reminds Last me. I so. I do have a I do have a cinema story I got to tell because that, that reminds well, yeah, me. Please do. I love cinema stories. Uh, so I, last night uh, I watched I rewatched Lady Vengeance, which is part three in the Vengeance trilogy by uh, Chan Wook Park of old boy fame. Um, and about halfway through the film, kind of it went to black and white, and I was like, is something? I was like, I don't remember this going to black and white. There's what what's going on here? This yeah. and and I was like. I was really confused and I was like, do I remember this wrong? Am I going crazy? And so I like, I popped in my DVD of the movie cause I w- I'd been watching it on Tubi. So I popped in my DVD and sure enough, it's in color. And you know, I checked some scene- scenes and so, and then I, I went and looked it up and sure enough, there's actually two versions of this movie. One, oh. one version full color and one version about halfway through it slowly 
goes into black and and white like all the colors start to kind of get pastel and then fade and then what? everything and i was just and i had no idea there were two versions of this movie until i happened to catch one of that, them on on tubi that's a fascinating shift in direction like you think of like the ridley scott blade runner director's cuts and like the first one had a bunch of voiceover by harrison ford and the second one had none and the third the third cut had had additional scenes stuck in by scott those are at least different but none of them desaturate the film halfway through. Like that's a, that's a bold stylistic change. That's yeah. huge. I, and I, like I said, I thought I was going nuts, and then I looked it up, and it was a very it's a very rare. I think it's a very rare uh, print where it was only released in a very few theaters, and that you have to like look for a a, a certain DV uh, like Blu-ray edition to get it. So. I was going to say, surely the desaturated version was not in theaters as much, right? That's right. got to be the rarer print. Because I right. bet whoever's running theatrical movie, the, the, whoever was in charge of the theatrical run of that film, probably like, it all needs to be color. We'll get more people to, to come see it, mm-hmm. right? That's fascinating. Tubi's got that? What's that What's that movie called? Lady Vengeance. Ooh, the third in the Old Boy series. All right. Or the Vengeance trilogy now. Go check out Lady Vengeance if you're into those. Uh, all right, Andy, we got to talk about some upcoming movie trailers. Uh, we're going to kind of split these up. I got them on screen if you're on Facebook. If you're listening at home, you're just going to have to listen and find out what they are. Four trailers today. Andy, uh, am I? Hold on. Am I taking the first you're, one? You're starting, the, you're starting the first I'm one. I'm starting the first one. That's <laughs> right. Uh, the first movie is Guillermo del Toro's Nightmare Alley. Nightmare Alley is the follow-up to Guillermo del Toro's Academy Award-winning feature, uh, 2019's The Shape of Water. If you don't know, Guillermo del Toro is traditionally a monster movie director, and he makes some rad stuff. Everything from Hellboy to The Shape of Water, Pan's Labyrinth. I'm sure there's some others, but I can't think of them off the top of my head. And Nightmare Alley seems to follow in that same vein uh it appears i don't know exactly the details here but it appears to take place in like a 1940s 1950s uh victorian inspired steampunky circus where a mysterious man uh played by bradley cooper who has not been on screen in a while excited to see him back uh bradley cooper arrives at the circus one day to find out more about what's going on and somehow he becomes I don't know, an act or a circus performer, something. Uh, the film also features uh, Willem Dafoe. Who else is in this feature? There's a wonderful uh, Kate Blanchett is in this movie. Uh, I don't know a lot about it, but the trailer is a lot of tone and not a lot of information, and I love trailers like that. Andy, you saw it. What do you think of the trailer for Last Night Last Night in Soho? For <laughs> Nightmare Alley. Um, it actually... It, I, I wish it kind of gave us a little bit more because we don't we get a lot of look at like the the style and the ambiance and the who's in it, but we don't really get a lot of like plot details or you know any kind of what it's gonna be about. If if this didn't have Guillermo del Toro's uh, name attached to it, I probably wouldn't be real excited about it. Um, but because it's him, I, I know that it's it's gonna be good and it's gonna be a monster movie because that's what he does. He makes monster movies. Yeah, there'll be there'll be something going on here, and there's no monster in the trailer. Maybe Bradley Cooper's the monster. I don't know, but you know, monsters go, go a friend. The friend we Alley. made along the way. That's right. Nightmare Alley is slated to come out uh, this December, December twenty one. So, in just a month, uh, keep an eye out. It, it's coming soon. So next on the uh, agenda, we have Morbius, which just had a new trailer drop today. This is hilarious yes. because I, I had to watch the stupid Morbius trailer for like a year and this movie's been pushed back because of the pandemic. I think it was originally summer 2020, 
2020 um and it's or fall 2020 and it's now i mean we're almost to 2022 it's so it will be coming out in january of 2022 this of course stars jared leto as a Dr. Michael Morbius, a man who is struck with some sort of disease and goes out to some exotic locale, gets bit by a bat or or something, turns into some sort of vampire, anti-hero, something. This is this is a Marvel property, but it's being developed by Sony. This this trailer was actually way better than the other two trailers we've seen. Like we've done nothing but laugh at the at this property, uh, but this trailer was actually really pretty good. It it had good action, uh, yeah. a lot lot a little bit more of the plot line. Um, and yeah, I think it'll probably be fine. It looks a little silly, but, um, it's better than what we've seen before. Yeah. It's hard to take Morbius seriously, right? Like it's, it's, it's set in the Venom, uh, Spider-Man Sony universe, not quite a full on Marvel film, but it's in that kind of shared universe that Marvel and Sony have going right now. Um, so it's by, you know, kind of that same team. It looks like those those initial trailers, we were supposed to take it pretty serious. They were presenting him as kind of a Doctor Strange kind of figure, this like master doctor who knows everything about medicine, but also suffers this horribly rare blood disease that like, you know, nobody nobody else has, whatever. They, they kind of send him up to be a Doctor Strange kind of individual. This new trailer looks a lot more glowing. Uh, he's a bit more of like a down on his luck Bruce Wayne, like, you know, ma- master of, of his craft, but can't solve this one thing until he goes to the mountains of Peru or wherever and meets a bunch of bats. Uh, you know, it looks okay. I, I think it looks better than it did. I did look it up. The movies entered principal photography in February, 2019. So yes, it was definitely supposed to be a, a 2020 film. I think Yeah. And now we're pushed all the way back here, but that's fine. And Hey, you know what they say about movies that come out in January? I, I mean, guaranteed to be huge. January is <laughs> ov- obviously Oscar season. Week, week. Uh, uh, so you know red letter yeah, media has fun. a great section about january yes yeah january films <laughs> in, in, in case you're not up on the on the gag they're not traditionally good that's that's you that's it's where you just dump studios it. put yes yeah, studios dump stuff in january because it's after the holidays and nobody's going to see films in january it's yeah so anyway uh the next trailer we have to talk about is michael bay's ambulance so Ambulance is the new Michael Bay feature. Uh, you know, Michael Bay, director of Transformers, Bad Boys 2, The Island, uh, Pain and Gain. Uh, a very, very explosive action auteur, right? Michael Bay loves to put the camera, like, on on somebody's back on the highway, doing crazy stunts, like lots of flash and lens flare and oversaturated whatever. And that all comes to Ambulance, the story of Yaya Abdul-Mateen II, uh, hot off his success in Candyman and I assume The Matrix 4. Uh, Yaya Abdul-Mateen plays a young man who's down on his luck and just needs a little money for his wife's surgery, I think. So uh, he meets up with his uh, brother, Jake Gyllenhaal, uh, who has gotten into the world of breaking into banks and stealing money and he invites him out on a gig and ultimately the gig goes south. The two end up trapped in an ambulance uh, with an injured cop and one, uh, what do you call it? Ambulance worker, paramedic, I guess. Paramedic, uh, yeah. Yeah, uh, who's in the back and they are on the run from the cops, the four of them trying to figure out what they're going to do and how they're going to get away. Uh, looks like a lot of flash. Looks like an explosive time at the movies. Uh, but like always with Michael Bay, I don't know what's going on with the plot. But with Jake Gyllenhaal and Yaya Abdul-Mateen, I mean, that's you don't got slouches. Like you could, you could, you could do some some narrative work there. I think, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So kind of the 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 hook for for the movie is that they they're escaping in an ambulance, 
but then there's also a cop they have shot in the the same ambulance. So they they kind of ha- hijack an ambulance who's picked up a patient, a uh, police officer whom they've shot. And so there's this whole like, well, we got to get away, but we don't want to just like have this guy die who's a cop with us. And then there there's a third person. Uh, female actor i don't don't remember who it is who plays like the paramedic tending to the doctor so that's kind of the the inward tension amongst like you know car chases shootouts sure explosions of of one form or another i'm sure it's going to be kind of mindless action it'll probably be perfect for january yeah yeah, i i think so like it looks just just goofy enough sure that'll be that'll be a fun time at the movies we we may go see it subscribe to our script for more andy one more movie What, what are we talking about lightyear so this was a huge surprise to me, uh, but it, this comes from Disney Pixar and is a prequel film of sorts of Buzz Lightyear, uh, simply called Lightyear. Uh, and this is not about the toy itself. This is about the man, Buzz Lightyear, with whom the toy is based on. So people were really confused because people were, were like, oh, I thought Buzz Lightyear was a toy. Now he has a backstory. So Buzz Lightyear is a real person that they then made a toy of that, that that's who we know from toy story this is like the man and he will be voiced by chris evans yes uh which is really exciting this trailer looked really great it it has this great rendition of, of david bowie's space oddity in the background um it looks a lot of fun looks awesome to see this kind of treatment of, of the property i'm super excited for it yeah i am too uh i think this looks like it's going to show off a lot of like pixar's newest lighting engine uh the lighting in this trailer is stunning and, and it feels like there's texture to everything. Like, their animation is clearly killing it. Uh, this does not look like any kind of small-time feature. Uh, and I'm excited. I, I wish the trailer featured a little bit more character. Um, that is the, that is a bit of a problem. They hold him uh, at, at arm's length. You don't get really any voice, I don't think, uh, from Chris Evans. We don't really know how he's going to sound. We don't really have any personality for Buzz in the feature other than hopeful and endearing. Um, but it looks neat. I, I like the idea that it's set in the world that, like the toy in toy story is based on like it's goofy but that's just thin enough where i don't mind suspending my disbelief and going to see the feature right like mm-hmm. why not what why why couldn't we do that that sounds fine like if they made a woody movie i go see it probably um it sounds neat like i'm interested uh we'll see where it goes animation looks solid uh, pixar is usually a hit my ear could be rad. Yeah. One more movie, Andy. One one more film we're reviewing this episode, then we're going to wrap things up. Uh, what uh, What's that other feature? The French Dispatch. It began as a holiday. Eager to escape a bright future on the Great Plains, Arthur Howitzer Jr. transformed the series of travelogue columns into the French Dispatch. So this is the latest film from writer-director Wes Anderson, who's done other big hits such as uh, Moonrise Kingdom, uh, his last film was the Grand Budapest Hotel and uh, Isle, uh, actually, was it Isle of Dogs? That may have been actually. Yeah, Isle of Dogs, then Grand Budapest? He, he's definitely an auteur. He, he has a really unique style, uses a lot of the same actors. He's been making movies for uh, about 20 years now. Really an established name. So the French Dispatch, um, which has a longer title of which is actually in Kansas. So this was, I was a little (laughs) confused by this. So it's a newspaper that's in Kansas, but they have like a front section about things happening in in France. It wasn't super clear, honestly, in the movie. Yeah, it's a little confusing. (laughs) uh, But long story short, there is a paper in Kansas called the the Kansas Evening Sun. The French Dispatch is part of that. It is run by... Liberty Kansas Evening Sun. Thank you. Yes, got it. And 
Bill Murray is the senior editor, and he's got to cut together this, this short magazine. He's got to get stories, got to get the different sections. And so that's what the movie kind of is. We get three short stories uh, kind of buffeted by uh, li- little shorts uh, beyond that. The first story is about a painter from who's in prison, played by Benicio de, Del Toro. Uh, the second story stars timothy chalamet about a student uprising and upheaval in in the town of ennui france and then uh the third story uh, deals with a kidnapping caper voice they're kind of recollected by jeffrey wright who has this incredibly incredibly smooth voice um that that he he gets to star in um and like most wes anderson features we get this really huge cast of characters some people with big roles some with with small everyone gets to do a little bit of everything we get a lot of quirky quirkiness pastels symmetrical shots really highly rehearsed highly synchronized uh shots uh that we have in the movie so that's kind of our setup zach what'd you think so i actually like the french dispatch a lot um it's interesting because i don't know who to recommend it to and I'll talk about it more at the end, um, but, but kind of the lead line for that for that loose recommendation now is I, I think the anthological nature of this film, the kind of three stories that are wrapped up into kind of one trapping of a film, gives Wes Anderson uh, three different chances to introduce quirky characters and exciting sets and like visually engaging narratives and and fun fun set pieces. Uh, all over the film, he gets to do it three times, right? Which which Anderson is great at. Every every Wes Anderson movie is full of quirky characters and like exciting sets. So being able to do that three times in a movie is huge. Like that that gives him three chances to show off like all these wonderful quirky settings and places he has. The problem is I don't I'm not sure any of those really wrap up into any solid narrative. And and just like any like short film anthology movie like you're gonna feel a little little lacking uh narratively throughout the whole piece you know you think of anything like any anthological film like that something like vhs the horror movie uh versus this like you're gonna you're gonna run into that same problem ultimately having three short stories is not quite as exciting as one large one uh the stakes aren't as high you know it's it's not quite as engaging uh from a narrative standpoint but those of you who are anderson fans and you know what you're getting into here i don't think you'll be disappointed so, Andy, where do we start talking about this monster? Uh, well, why don't we talk about the uh, just the visual style? That's part of what he's best known for. Sure. Uh, so, like you said, uh, Anderson obviously is is known for his is almost like stage like presentation, right? Everything is one point perspective. The camera's always just flatly facing the side of a building or the side of a house or the side of a room, right? And our characters are kind of walking straight through it. That's, that's how everything is presented. Almost like you're sitting in an audience looking at a stage and visually um, that sounds like it would be flat, but Anderson takes every single opportunity possible to change it up and give you something exciting. Whether, whether that's a bunch of props on screen that are, perfectly orientated and symmetrical to fit exactly where everything should go visually to having sliding cameras on dolly shots move around or pull-ins and push-outs crash zooms on occasion uh, and even a very diverse use of color and black and white in this film which bounces back and forth often and i think obviously has larger larger visual implications but i'd need to watch the film again to really analyze them and figure out what all those are um 
that stuff's a ton of fun. And visually, this movie, I don't think misses. I mean, it even has fun sequences like like a, like stop motion uh, bits. Miniatures are featured in here. Matte paintings are going to be in this movie. You've got black and white sequences versus color. Side by sides, he plays with aspect ratio. There's an animated sequence. <laughs> like like the, the visual engagement in the French Dispatch is very, very good. I, I, I find myself constantly looking and darting around seeing things on screen. So huge fan of the visual presentation. Yeah, that's one of the things that I think is, is most impressive about the movie. You'll have these shots where like 16 things happen in a certain order. And it, like, it's not 16 things happening at once. It's things being synchronized like a clock. And it's like, I mean, it must've taken so much rehearsal because it, it's so tight. There's a, there's a shot outside of France, like in the morning and, and it's, you know, it's narrated with like a busy Sunday or Monday morning. And, and like, you know, 15 people walk out through, from different directions and different angles, all doing different things and sync up. There's animals that are synced up, which I think is probably really difficult to do. Um, things like that that are really impressive like you said the the use of color and black and white is is really stunning just how much is going on in in a lot of scenes it's really a lot yeah like somehow yeah i know this is split into three kind of shorter features and, and the trappings around that so it seems like it would move really fast this movie feels way longer than an hour 48 at least to me, it feels very full. It feels very dense because there is just constantly stuff going on on screen. There's some kind of visual gag or some some kind of visual metaphor or some kind of crazy action or some new thing that's just just been uncovered. Um, I love that. And, and I, I appreciate, like you said, uh, his ability to kind of produce visual comedy from that, either from... Uh, staging, right? A character says something will happen and then immediately on screen that thing does happen, right? And it gives your characters a, a feeling of fullness in the narrative. Or something is, is simply visual as having like an almost black and white shot and then out of nowhere a very bright neon green object appear in frame. Little things like that create like visual fidelity that you don't get in a lot of other features. That's why I think Anderson often feels like an auteur because he's able to develop his own visual style. Nobody else has. Michael Bay's got the same thing, except with explosions and lens flares. Wes Anderson has that with, you know, <laughs> the French Dispatch and Grand Budapest and any any of his other features. Uh, and that's on that's on display here in spades. Like it, 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 he's doing more of it than ever before. Now. It's also worth mentioning we have a very wide, diverse cast. Maybe oh his biggest cast ever. Um, I mean, I've got I've got the poster on screen, and you can barely see all the names on there. But there's a, there's a second print of the poster with all the characters, and it looks like a freaking Monty Python, like Terry Terry Gilliam uh, uh, amalgamation of faces and mess. Like, there's so many people in this movie. Yeah, I mean, just just to read a, a short list, we have Benicio del Toro, Adrian Brody, Tilda Swinton, Leia Sadu, Francis McDormand, Timothy Chalamet, Jeffrey Wright. I mean, it just goes on. Stephen Park. Bill Murray, Bill Murray, Owen, Owen Wilson, Wilson and yeah. Henry Winkler. Like, I mean, it's, it's just, and then there's, and there's more and right. And, oh, and there's, there's Easter egg people who you don't, you won't even see on IMDb. Edward Norton's in here. Also Christoph Waltz appears in this movie. Uh, Lee Schreiber appears in this film. Like it's crazy. How many people are in this movie and they're all good. Like they're, they're all really good in it. I don't, I don't feel anybody is wasted. Everybody feels pitch perfect. Uh, notable, notable, Performances include, uh, uh, I think, Leia Sadu as a very toned down 
um, but very exciting character named Simone. Uh, Benicio Del Toro is a ton of fun. Timothy Chalamet is great as Zeffirelli. And, and I think, I gotta say, man, standout performance might have to go to Jeffrey Wright. He is so much fun in this movie and such a far cry from his muted character in HBO's Westworld. Like, immediately draws my attention. He's great in this movie. Jeffrey yeah. Wright's wonderful in <laughs> He this has such this... He has just this really low, like, smooth voice that just, like, oh. brings you along. I mean, it's like... He might be like the next Morgan Freeman to like do his voiceover oh, over his yeah, he's, so he's, good. And he's just got this presence. And his story it, it kind of spans past and future. So we get kind of older Jeffrey Wright and then younger Jeffrey Wright. And like both of them are wonderful in their own way. The older one's like thoughtful and pensive and quiet. And the younger one's emotional and he's a hot shot. He's got fire in his eyes. Like... Man, like a ton of fun. Like everybody's firing on all cylinders. I think, you know, everybody says they love working with Wes. They want to keep working with him. Um, you know, I, I I think the man's more than capable of directing a cast. That's for sure. Uh, how about, Andy, the comedy? Did you laugh in this movie? No. I laughed a lot watching no. this. Okay, you didn't, <laughs> you didn't Maybe laugh in this movie. Okay, that's okay. My theater wasn't very full, and I think it was one. Of, if it was a bigger crowd, like it's one of those things where like if enough people chuckle, it kind of yeah, it, it, it sounds like a laugh. But because it was just me and like three other people, uh, a lot of the jokes kind of fell flat uh, for me and for my my theater. <laughs> Yeah, well, it's certainly a dry sense of humor, and I think this is probably the same for me. I don't think really anybody laughed. My theater was, yeah, to be fair, I went and saw it at Alamo, so that does invite a, um, what's, I, I want to say a bit of an older crowd, right? You're not going to get a lot of teens hanging out at Alamo, and my, my theater was older folks, because it's a Wes Anderson movie, right? Like, you're, you're, you're kind of inviting people who are going to be more mature and, and, and are going to be pursuing an Academy Award winning cast. Uh, and yeah, most of them did not laugh once. Whereas me and me and Christine were like rolling in our seats in like multiple instances. And there's stuff I laughed at that like nobody else laughed at. Like I, 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 I found funny that everybody else didn't think was funny or didn't care. Um, but I feel like Anderson's, you know, love letter to journalism here, like is, is chock full of the quirks and, and eccentricities of not only the unique authors that inspire the work, um, but the characters that are found in it. Uh, each of these writers, uh, Tilda Swinton's J.K.L. Berenson, Francis McDormand's Lucinda Cremens, and Jeffrey Wright's Roebuck Wright, are all really unique narrators, like with their own character and their own setting and their own set of problems. And all of them are pushed to the side uh, in service of producing, you know, an exciting story for Bill Murray's uh, uh, editor-in-chief. <laughs> and I... I love that. I love that they all feel like they have personality, and yet Bill Murray's able to step back and say, well, just make sure, you know, it sounds like you wrote it that way yeah. on purpose. Mm -hmm. um, very charming, very simple, uh, and I really got into it. I was going to mention, I also really like enjoyed the movie, the music uh, of the movie. Mm. Um, it's actually a lot of tu yes. tuba playing, which I appreciate. It's very solid, very good playing. Uh, but yeah, just like the, the film is, is quirky and, and the shots are really unique, the music is like that as well. It's very light lighthearted, very like fun score. Mm. That reminds me, uh, a quick aside for those of you listening to the show, uh, over the weekend I was at a Halloween party and I might have told somebody I knew, uh, somebody who used to be a music teacher and no longer was, and that that person used to play trombone. Andy, you used to play tuba, didn't you? Yes. You didn't play trombone. No. I mean, I, I, also, I could, you, but it, it wasn't like my You name. also likely did not go to the University of North Texas, right? No. 
Okay. Well, if you get any your fan mail or anything, uh, just direct it to me. I'm happy to happy to field <laughs> that for you. Uh, anyway, um, yeah, the music is, is tremendous in this movie. Lots of fun. And, and there's a couple tracks that are featured prominently in the trailer that are really also featured prominently in this, but that's okay. Like Anderson, like Edgar Wright, I think is, is, is talented at kind of choosing their own musical direction. I think they're drawn by a lot of the indie music they listen to and like the stuff that those directors... The music they're, they're influenced by is usually in the film, right? They, they, they draw inspiration from that stuff, and that's good. Um, and I'm glad a lot of that makes it here. Lots of great French music. Lots of good foreign music. Uh, you know, a lot, a, lot of, a lot of fun tunes. And much to say uh, politically about the world uh, in these features. Andy, any other thoughts for recommendations? I mean, I think that's where it kind of falls short for me, is that just the, the three narratives, first of all, they don't really tie together, but they also just individually... I feel aren't really saying much. Like they're fun little stories, but I I was just thinking they might say more because something like the Grand Budapest Hotel is kind of a more mature work and has kind of themes run it running through it. And we don't really get that. They're just kind of quirky stories for the sake of being quirky. Yeah, I I would liken it more to like Grand Budapest or Royal Tenenbaums or or, or Life Aquatic, um, Darjeeling Limited. One of his previous features would be more like a more like, more like some kind of unique entree or, or a full course meal you're getting somewhere. Whereas this is like a, a selection of fine finger foods. You know, this is this is just a tasting from from a director who otherwise would be making something more robust. And that's okay. Like, I think this gives him the opportunity to experiment, to try new things. It's a little like Edgar Wright doing this kind of dual feature in Last Night in Soho. But um, I just wanted more. <laughs> and it's... It's a little lacking that way. I think that's 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 why it makes it a little hard to recommend. But that's that's kind of like an anthology feature. I think. I don't know. Any other thoughts, Andy? I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend Wes Anderson's The French Dispatch? I would recommend it for fans of Wes Anderson. If you're a diehard fan, you've seen all his movies, and and you just love what what he does, um, go out and see it. If you're a little curious, if you're not a huge into it i would say save it for streaming it one of my issues with wes anderson is that he kind of i feel like he makes the same movie every time it's like a lot of the same kinds of shots and characters and it, it's just very similar film film to film and he has such an incredible style i would just like him to tell better stories or to use it kind of differently this is a similar issue we, we had with last night in soho tons of style not as much much substance um, I recently, last week I watched Juan Carwise in the mood for love, which has incredible, incredible style about this, uh, it's kind of this unrequited love story in the sixties, but it's like dripping with, with style of Tokyo in the sixties, but it also tells a very powerful story. And that's what we're not getting here, here with both of these directors. I, I think we're getting lots of style, lots of fun, not a lot of like substance in the narrative. Yeah, I think that's fair critique. I, I think, you know, the French Dispatch is, is trying to kind of capture. Ultimately, I think I think it really is like a, lo yeah, a love letter to journalists and journalism and writers. Uh, there's a ton of really brilliant gags in here uh, devoted to writing and editing and, and the art of kind of capturing the essence of something in your words and, and translating it for somebody else. And I think Anderson tries really hard to kind of capture that metaphorically in his presentation, right? It's, it's almost like you're reading the French Dispatch. You're, you're literally reading through a selection in the order they would appear, which is neat. But it, it, it does ultimately feel like it doesn't, it doesn't have something bigger to say. But maybe it does. You know, I, I'm, I'm really not so sure anymore because the longer I, I've been away from the film, the more time I spend thinking about it, the more I think, you know, there's something, 
something there. There's something to be said about writing and creating and, and, and painting and, and revolution and writing a manifesto and, and even food critique uh, is, is addressed in this feature. Um, I think the French Dispatch is great. I really do. I, I don't. I just don't know who I could recommend it to. So for me, I'd say if you're a fan of Anderson, if you already know what you're getting into, if you've listened to this review and you're interested, go for it. Go see it at theater. You'll probably enjoy it. If you've never watched a Wes Anderson movie, you need to stay far away from the French Dispatch. <laughs> I, think, <laughs> I think this would be a misstep into his uh, filmography if you've never seen anything he's done. Maybe not. I mean, maybe the short nature of each one of these would make it a little bit more accessible, uh, but I, I think it would have an inverse effect. So if you like Wes Anderson, you're going to love the French Dispatch. If you've never seen a, Fr a Wes Anderson movie, maybe wait for streaming. That's my advice. And with that, Andy, I think we're, I, I mean, if I didn't know any better, I'd say we're through the show. That's, that's it. <laughs> that's the whole episode 156. Uh, how, how about that? Just about that. Well, uh, let's talk about what we're seeing next week. Yes. So the first weekend in November is going to feature Eternals, uh, the newest big blockbuster property from Marvel. Uh, this is, I think, really officially kicking off phase four. Of Marvel. Is and this the official Phase 4 I, kickoff? It's hard to say because a lot of the other films have been yeah. kind of... Well, I guess Shang-Chi. I, 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 I thought Shang-Chi was... Shang-Chi, yeah. So, uh, but this will be... A bit, this is going to be a big deal. We've been waiting a long time. This was supposed to come out last year in, in the fall. Uh, so we've had to wait a whole extra year for this huge, very diverse cast. It's going to be a lot of fun. So that's this weekend. And then we are also going to uh, go foreign <laughs> with you with uh, <laughs> the film Titan, which we, which we had to Titan. Fig, which we had to, to figure, be fair, before, figure okay. out how to say. It. We were not before, sure, hundred percent sure that's how to say it. Uh, yeah, before the show, I asked Andy. Wait, I think I think the pronunciation is weird. It's not Titan like it looks. T i t a n e. I think it's some t. t I think I said. Titane, and then you said Titan, and we still don't really know. It's a French film. It, it run. It won the Palme d'Or at Cannes last year. It's supposed to be awesome, uh, and right. it's available on VOD. You can rent it, right? So that's that's where we'll be seeing it. Yeah, and it, it's directed by Julia Ducournau, who previously did Raw, which is, was a huge mm. hit, which I still need need to watch. But it's it's also a horror film from a few years ago, which really I, made not... made waves. I might have, I might have got spooked by Raw and read the Wikipedia summary one night. Yeah, I, I don't so, remember how it ends, but I remember reading and being like, I don't know if I want to watch this film. But very very visceral, very visual. Um, trailer does not give a lot away. Uh, I don't really know what's going on in that movie, so I kind of want to just go in blind and see. Um, so yeah, uh, Andy, maybe we should get maybe we should get together and watch that. I don't know. We could. We could. I mean, by get together, I of course mean go to your place. And watch it, but, yeah. But. Yes. It. This was playing very briefly on, on in cinemas. It is now quickly on moved to VOD, which is perfect. Uh, I think I'm happy to watch uh, this this at home. As uh, although I would have loved to see it in the theater as well. Very short uh, window that it had. Yeah, ba barely over here. Uh, if you enjoyed the show today. We liked what we're doing here on Offscript. If you want to hear more, maybe weigh in on what you thought of the movies we watched or maybe have some recommendations for us, email us at mail at offscriptfilmreview.com. Uh, you can email us anything you want. Correspondence, uh, all right, from the front. Uh, you can send us photos of things you've gone to do. We'll feature them on the show if we can. Maybe post them for you on our Facebook and Twitter accounts where you can follow us. Uh, we live stream the show every week on Facebook as well at about 4.30 Central every Tuesday. We're on Instagram. We're on YouTube. Uh, you can catch us around and you're welcome to like and comment over there. You can check out our website, offscriptfilmreview.com for full episodes, interviews, and more. But the biggest 
thing you could do if you enjoyed the show and you want to contribute to what we're doing here is just subscribe. Subscribe to the show to get new episodes delivered straight to you every single week. Like and follow where you can. That's also tremendous. Uh, we like going to see movies and like doing podcasts and we're going to keep doing them. So, you know, just, 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 just come along for the ride. It'll be great. We'll do it together. It'll be fun. All right. All in from all of us at Offscript, the home of bold cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.